your fall fabulous at Mount Airy Lodge or Pocono Gardens. Do all the things you've wanted to do all summer, all day, all night. Winter, spring, summer, fall. Call 966-7210 for reservations at Pocono Gardens and beautiful Mount Airy Lodge. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Mountain Comics. I am your host, Rob Kelly, and this is the show where I look back at the comic books I bought while on vacation in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania in the 1970s and 1980s. And joining me in the cabin this week is big-time comics pro and editor of the very comic we'll be talking about this month, Marvel's Greatest Comics number 93, Danny Fingeroth. Hi, Danny. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Well, I'm thrilled, too, although it does seem like a, a wacky premise for a show, I have to tell you. <laughs> It is. It's a very uh, wacky premise for a show. Yeah. So, but I'm game. So yeah, let's... absolutely. Yeah, I was so excited. We'll, we'll get into it about kind of why I wanted to ask you to be on this specific uh, episode of the show. Again, for people that are from, you know kind of newer to the show, you know, the, the I went on vacation every year in the Pocono Mountains, and, and it was a very specific time of my life, kind of the best time of my childhood. And the, that is, I loved comics. I read them all year, you know, all year round throughout my entire childhood and into my, what I laughingly call adulthood. But the comics I bought while on vacation were just such a special thing because they just, there was no TV. There was not a lot of creature comforts. It was all just kind of reading. And I really got to explore the world of comics in a way I wouldn't have otherwise because I just had to, I, there was so much time and I would read things I wouldn't normally buy. Like case in point, this very comic, which is, Mar- again, as, as I said, was Marvel's Greatest Comics number 93. Now this was one of Marvel's, reprint titles. Marvel had a bunch of reprint titles going on, reprinting in order various runs of characters. You had Marvel Tales, of course, featuring Spider-Man. You had uh, Marvel Superheroes featuring the Hulk, which we covered a couple of years ago. Fantasy Masterpieces, which was Silver Surfer. Marvel Super Action, which was the Avengers. Tales to Astonish, which was the Submariner. Amazing Adventures featuring the X-Men. So, I mean, Marvel got a lot of mileage out of these sort of umbrella titles. Uh, and reprinting this material that really wasn't available anymore, at least by around you know the years that these books were published. Now, again, I'm going to get into the synopsis of the story, but we're really not here to talk about this the, the story exactly so much. I really want to talk about your your time working at Marvel uh, around the late '70s and early '80s. But I do want to ask: when you were a kid, did you go on vacation? Did you have a special vacation spot where you got comic? I mean, what was your history of reading comics as a kid? Uh, well, I started reading them, you know, when I was maybe five years old. I think I, I, think I started reading maybe with, you know, I watched um, Popeye cartoons on TV, and so I knew that character. And, uh, you know, so somewhere in there, my, uh, my mom, I think, got me some Popeye comics. And then um, my, my cousin Steve, I think, was into superhero comics. I remember him giving me, uh, like, a, you know, adventure comics with Superboy. This is... This is back in the uh, late 50s, early 60s we're talking about. So, um, um, but I was a, two things. I was a city kid and I was a comics fan. So I never went anywhere without at least 100 comic books with me. <laughs> um, but because I was a city kid uh, and um, and uh, my parents were, able to swing it, I went away 
every summer from the time I was five for two months to summer camp. Wow. So what I had to do um, was leave my mom with a detailed list of what comics would be coming out. <laughs> so that she, and then, and then the, um, you know, the newsstand dealers. I mean, I grew up uh, uh, in Manhattan, you know, so the, the, um, the newsstand dealer on, on 86th street uh, and Lexington knew me um, well enough that even without the list, I'm sure he would have sold my mother what I wanted, but I, I needed to make sure she had a list. So, um, my family took vacations. Um, my father had a, um, somewhat unusual work schedule. So, um, I, so the summer I go away to camp and, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I certainly anywhere we went on vacation, I knew where to find the comics, but I don't have uh, what it sounds like you have, which is maybe a more traditional thing where you're kind of, you know, living in a suburban kind of situation or a rural situation. You've got your bike and you're riding around. And yeah, yeah. Your comics. I, I had the, uh, you know, the version of it that I just described to you. So, so it was, um, you know, but it, it's pretty sure that anytime we went anywhere, I, I brought a big stack of comics, um, you know, because God forbid I'd be out of the house for three hours and not near all my comics. <laughs> so now obviously your parents were very supportive of your comic book reading if she's actually buying these for you. But like, did your mother have any idea like what she was buying outside of the list? Cause I'm trying to imagine, you know, your poor mother trying to be like, what the, what the hell's a fantastic four? Like, what is, what is that? Yeah. You know, um, let's say I was one of three boys. I was the youngest. Um, and my father, I think my mother was prepared for it because even though both my parents were uh, highly educated and uh, you might even call them intellectuals, uh, my father was a big fan of Western, Western movies, Western TV shows. So I think my, you know, uh, my mother, I think, was used to having like genre Mm -hmm. fiction as a category. Um, I I will say that I remember... At one point, my mom, I remember her getting mail regularly from, like, um, anti-violence and media organizations, oh. you know, and she would contribute money. My mom was, my mom um, would give 5 or $10 to pretty much any organization that asked, so she was <laughs> constantly getting, like, you know, I mean, unless it was something she found reprehensible, of course. Right, right, right. Anything that was even mildly within her her uh, bailiwick, she would uh, send five or ten bucks to. <laughs> so she must have gotten on the mailing list. But I did notice that after I started working in comics, I didn't see those letters coming from those anti-violence and media uh, organizations <laughs> anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's absolutely amazing. I, I just love the idea of your mother trying to scour the, the newsstands looking for, you know, these weird titles. I think living in an all-male household and we were – you know, I mean, if you can sort of picture it, the, you know, the TV landscape of the 50s and 60s was these shows that were not graphically violent, but sort of if you if you kind of watch them, I mean, Untouchables being the most extreme top show that was that was really, uh, as an adult, I watched it and I went, holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, I think I think there was. You know, she was, my mother was progressive. My father was busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he liked, you know, he liked top shows and, 
and cowboy shows uh, too. So I know what you're saying, though. I mean, it, it, and when I look back and I and I think, uh, huh, there was all that brouhaha in the '50s about how horrible comics were. But I, uh, you know, somehow I think my brothers were not especially big comics fans. Mm-hmm. So even though they were growing up in in the '50s, uh, I don't think it it uh, it came into the house much. So. Yeah, I think I think maybe just uh, yeah, yeah I, you know I read I read regular books and I think just the idea that I was reading right, but right. I, I never I never got a sense of any uh, judgment on that from from my parents. It, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I even remember like reading. Uh, although he was probably asleep, but reading reading like uh, excerpts of pages from comics to my dad. Um, and him pretending that he was listening, you know. So. <laughs> That's great. It's <laughs> absolutely marvelous. So, uh, as I said, I really want to talk to you about your time uh, at Marvel in the late seventies, early eighties, when you were both writer and editor. But I also just want to—I'm going to briefly get to the plot so we could just kind of discuss it and then move on because okay. it's really the career. So, this book, Marvel's Greatest Comics, number ninety-three, it was on sale July fifteenth, nineteen eighty. So I would have been uh, nine years old when I bought this off the newsstand. Uh, it reprints. Fantastic Four, number 113, The Power of the Overmind. Now, it's funny because um, the original issue that this reprints, as I just said, Fantastic Four, number 113, was on sale August 1971, which was the month I was born. So (laughs) this thing all lines up with me quite with my life quite nicely. The story is called The Power of the Overmind. It's by Stan the Man Lee, big John Buscema and Joe Sinat. Now, again, just before I get to the synopsis, the cover to this uh, book, it is the reprint of the cover from the original FF, except the original is in full color. It's, it's got the, this character, and again, we'll see some, you can see some of the images on our gallery post over on our website, firewaterpodcast.com. The, the cover is just full color, and it's got the overmind, and then there's the Watcher Speaks and the Fate of the Thing and Mr. Fantastic Fights Back, the Torch in Action. It's, you know, gangbuster issue. But on the reprint, that cover has been recolored to a monochromatic look where the overmind is in orange and then the side interstitial pieces are in a lighter orange and then the cover is a dark purple. So it's the same artwork, but it's just colored differently. Now, I'm not going to expect you, Danny, to remember these details. You know, what, forty. What, what, tell me when this came out. What uh, 1980? What month? Yeah, 1980, J- July of 1980. It was cover dated, or that's when it came out. Uh, oh yeah, it cover dated October 1980. Oh, yes. it came out in July. Okay, yeah, it came so, out in July. So, like, right. can do you happen to remember what would be the impetus to like redo a cover like that? I mean, wouldn't it have just been easier to just run the one that? the original book had, was it just to differ- differentiate it a little bit? Did you make that, you know, was that something that, you know, the reprint editors thought of, of just like, Oh, this, you know, it's, it's just a little something different we can do. You know, um, those are all good questions. <laughs> um, well, the way the system worked and of course I, I guess it could have the, what we got when we kind of put in a requisition to the, uh, you know, to the, to the archive, we'd get a black and white cover. I think the co- to get the color cover uh, would have been much more elaborate. You'd have to get mm-hmm. film and, and mm-hmm. it was a much more elaborate process. I think in some ways it was probably easier just to recolor it. We had, you know, people on staff. Right, but, the bullpen, sure. Well, but we had specifically George Russo's was right. the 
that, that was his job was to be the cover colorist. Gotcha. Um, and I think, um, you know, Marie Severin, I'm not sure if she was still on staff then, but she could help out. So, but that was George's job to be the cover colorist. I think, you know, if there was a philosophy of any kind, because I think sometimes we did pretty much imitate the, uh, the original cover. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some things that, you know, there may be different things like a UPC seal. I don't know if it had that. There may, there may be different cover elements or trade dress mm-hmm. or logo size that you have to move stuff around. Uh, I think, I think, say, while while you couldn't, while what you were selling was a comic from eight years ago, mm-hmm. I think you still wanted the cover to be something that would simultaneously stand out as having a certain amount of uniqueness, but also sure. would would look like a comic of the modern era. So I think that was probably, you know, a part of the impetus. Um, but I, but honestly, I. It just sort of came with the territory. You know, I was, by the time that came out in July of 1980, I had moved over. The reason I did all those reprint books, and, uh, you know, Jim Trigger was nice enough to let me put my name in them, was I, uh, the way I understood it was Marvel had promised their advertisers a certain amount, you know, that their ads would be in, you know, X number of issues, X number of comic books every month. And I think uh, we were in a little bit of a sales downturn so that in order to fulfill those obligations, uh, the company had to put out more titles. Now, Marvel's greatest greatest comics had been coming out already. That was an ongoing title. Right, right. right. Uh, But the others, Fantasy Masterpieces, Amazing Adventures, they were, you know, they were, those were names and logos that we'd used, Marvel had used in the past. Right, right. but, But the idea, so yeah, that was a, a quick and uh, relatively painless way. And it's it kind of segued interestingly because before that I'd been actually doing, I, I started in Marvel in the British department, which was mainly a reprint material where we change like color to color and, you know, <laughs> right, ele- <yeah>. and, and <laughs> elevated to lift, you know, stuff right. like that. <laughs> Take all the Britishisms out. Yeah, so that way they wouldn't know that we weren't actually British, you know, and, uh, <laughs> And and uh, so I had a lot of experience doing reprints already. So this was just more than that. But by but by mid nineteen eighty, I was already I so I had the British department moved to Britain. Oddly enough, um, I was working. I had started working there in uh, seventy seven with Larry Lieber. Because Larry had come back from Atlas Seaboard, and he was running the British department. And I was his assistant. And uh, then Des Skin, if you know that name, came. I do. Sure. He. He convinced Marvel of the crazy idea that maybe British comics should be put out, you know, in England, <laughs> so um, by actual English people, um, and that's you know that's where people like Alan Moore and Steve Dillon and uh, um, um, you know a lot of a lot of people who went on to become big in British and then American comics sure. started yeah. in those uh, in, in those British books. But but uh, on the American side, that's we had done Captain Britain with Chris Claremont and Herb Trimpey and John Buscema and. Uh, people like that. So anyway, um, so I was in the middle of segueing into uh, working in the mainstream comics with Louise Simonson. You know, I, I'd gone through a couple of different, um, after the British department, I was sort of a shared assistant between Shooter and Sal Brodsky. And then uh, when, when Louise was hired from uh, away from Warren, uh, I was assigned as her assistant and luckily we got along very well. Uh, but So by then I was uh, heavily into being her assistant, editing a couple of books on my own. And I, I, I don't know how much longer after that 
I don't, I don't know if I kept editing the uh, reprints or maybe once the company was putting out enough new material, they stopped. I don't, I don't know how much, but so, so Marvel's greatest comics was part of that workload that I was given. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, I said, Oh my God, I, that's so great. That's, I never realized that, that part of the reason there were so many new reprint titles starting in, on, in the late seventies, early eighties, on top of the ones that had already been running, like you said, like Marvel's greatest, as I mentioned, this is number 93. So the book had been around for several years at that point in Marvel tales, but it was partly was an ad thing. I never, I never knew that. So that's fascinating. I said, oh. I, I, you know, I got to tell you when, when I was a kid and I was buying these comics, like these names that I saw in these books, I mean, I was familiar with Jack Kirby, obviously, and Stan Lee and John Buscema. But when I saw names, you know, like yours and stuff, I was like, who are these people? Like, what what must it be like to work at Marvel? You know, like, it just seemed like, are these real people? They must be real people, right? It just seemed like magical uh, beings that worked on these things that I just showed up in my neighborhood. Uh, kind of. Uh, that was the impression. We, we wanted to give the impression... We wanted to simultaneously give that impression, but also that we were just regular people, too. Right. So it was, well, a, it was an interesting balancing act. You mentioned the cover, wanting it to look a little more contemporary possible. And that's sort of funny, because that's how it worked out, is that the way that I, you know, some of the comics that I bought uh, on these vacations, I still have. I still have some of these same copies, but a lot have been lost over time. And one of the ways that I kind of jog my memories that I go to a website called Mike's Amazing World, which is this incredible database. And I would pull up all the comics that were on sale during the time I would have been on vacation. And I can, I could just look at the covers and go, Oh yeah, I had that one. Oh yeah, I had that one. And, you know, and that's how I was able to assemble this list of books that I've been covering over the seasons. This one somehow escaped my vision. I guess I just, <laughs> I just sort of like the cover must've been represented on my site, but I think my eyes must've just glazed over it. And then a couple of months ago, I was at a used bookstore down in Delaware that sells comics, uh-huh. and I'm just thumbing through, and this book was in there. And this cover, as I mentioned, it's orange with purple, which is a very unique color combination. And it's monochromatic, which is even more unusual. It it was like, boom. Like, I was like, oh, I remember this one, because it was the cover. It, that was the co- And I, you know, I bought it immediately, but... It's, it was, so if that was George Russo's, thank you, Mr. Russo's, for, for picking oh, the know, monochromatic color scheme. The, the, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking it up now. Um, the, uh, cause I actually, I was just, what I was reading was the uh, digital version of the original. Right. right, right. Um, and you know, that, that, this is what started as Marvel's collector's items classics. Right. Right. The Marvel's greatest comics. Yep, and they right. It changed title, it changed names, and then it just became an right. all Fantastic Four yeah, uh, reprint book. So yeah, um, <laughs> it, had, it had to make room for this giant win a Toys R Us shopping spree banner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, was, that, I think the following month was the famous uh, the, the thing for winning a bike, and that oh, the Schwinn bike, yeah, bike, and that was on the top of everything, including including uh, um, uh, the Death of Phoenix issue. Yeah. Oh <laughs> wow! Oh, you're right. It went purple. You know, and so the original would have been, yeah, more. So the, so it went, we went purple with it. Yeah, it's really striking. It's a really striking color yeah. combination. So I really, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, because on the one, you know, and again, these are just these funny contradictions of the business that, you know, that didn't strike me at the time. On the one hand, I, you know, we, well, we definitely had to mess around. Um, uh, you know, if, if you compare it to the original comic, I'm sure a lot of the elements of it have shifted around just because 
to fit that huge banner at the top and the mm-hmm. logo, which is much Marvel's greatest comics featuring featuring Fantastic Four, is much uh, bigger than uh, just the Fantastic Four logo. But the so maybe 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 because there was all this uh, cover copy and especially that big banner, uh, maybe that was the thinking of going more monochromatic. Because, yeah. because on the one hand, you know, I, I stand by what I said about wanting a more modern look. On the other hand, Joe Drusso's, as he, if you know his career, he started out like in the early 40s working on Batman. So it wasn't like he, we had some kid out of, uh, right, sure. out of art yeah. school. We had, you know, one of the most accomplished and respected pros uh, in the company, you know, but, but he was, so it was, but, you know, uh, but uh, he could still, somebody like that obviously could still do a more modern thing. But uh, I, I, believe me, I could not tell you how many versions we went through. Or, <laughs> no, and like I said, I would never expect uh, that. There's no way that, yeah. you know, this job you were doing and then it's lodged in my brain, in my nine-year-old brain, and it's been there the whole time. Oh, so, I get it. I, so. Yeah, the, the, uh, it's that, you know, sort of a, a is that uh, old saying that the golden age of anything is 12. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, okay. So I said for anybody who hasn't read this, I'm just going to do the plot synopsis and then I'm going to get back to talking about the the behind the scenes stuff. So it's, it opens with Reed and Johnny and Alicia standing over the thing who has seemingly died in his citywide brawl with the Hulk. That was last issue. However, Reed manages to still detect a pulse beating beneath the thing's thick skin. With a mob growing unruly, the police attempt to arrest the Fantastic Four. Reed Reed resists, and they are rescued at the last minute by the timely arrival of Sue, who keeps the mob at bay with her invisible force field. As the group flies home, they notice... I feel like I'm there with your rendition of it. It's like I'm I'm in the streets with with the Fantastic Four. Try to do a radio drama version here. As the group flies home, they notice an ominous light in the sky as well as the mob of angry people at the doors of the Baxter building. As Mr. Fantastic is trying is busy trying to save Ben's life, Johnny notices the light in the sky is getting bigger and the crowd's becoming more frenzied with each passing moment. Getting fed up with the mob, Johnny sends down a smoke bomb to disperse them. Reed pulls Johnny back into the lab, needing his power to energize the device needed to save Ben's life. The operation turns out to be a success. Ben's personality is restored to normal, but he has lost the ability to change back into human form. When Reed explains that he has perfected the machine and offers to try again, Ben decides that he's comfortable being the thing and smashes it instead. I'm almost done. Later, Ben, later, later, Ben decides to take Alicia out on a date. This sight upsets Johnny, who once more turns his thoughts to Crystal. The bright light in the sky draws closer and enters the Baxter building. Suddenly, in a flash of light, the Watcher has appeared before Reed and Sue. The Watcher has come to issue them a warning but unwilling to break his vow of non-interference yet again, the Watcher only provides them a stern warning. Beware the overmind. He then teleports away. Reed and Sue then try and find Johnny and Ben. While in flight, they're telepathically contacted by Agatha Harkness, who warns them that there is great danger coming and hints that Franklin also sensed the danger. Reed and Sue were then both shocked by a radio report that the mayor of New York City has ordered the Fantastic Four to disband. Reed and Sue land near City Hall where they're joined by Johnny and Ben. They then try to warn the mayor of the danger coming to Earth, but the mayor calls the police. When the thing tries to fight back, Reed orders him to stand down and allows the Fantastic Four to be taken into police custody. As they are being led into a police wagon, the mayor is joined by the Overmind, who has used its vast powers to take control of the mayor's mind. So, okay. (laughs) Thank you for staying awake through that. That's okay. uh, I appreciate it. Who is this? Okay, I'm back. Yeah. So... (laughs) So now, were you, did you read the Fantastic Four as a kid? Like, was, was this, were you, you know, did you read these as a kid so you were kind of familiar with this material or was this new to you? May, may I remind you that the Fantastic Four, 
uh, was the world's greatest comic magazine. Absolutely. Yes, and it was. It lived up to the hype. I mean, it was the first. It was the first Marvel, modern Marvel comic, and uh, I don't know how to convey what it was like to be reading that as a as an eight year old kid who already was jaded after having read comics for three years, <laughs> not realizing I was jaded. But this thing comes along, um, and um, and 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 it's. Um, incredible! It breaks my first. My first. I think I was reading other Marvel comics. Oddly enough, I think in the barber shop I was reading Millie the Model. You know, um, so I was reading Stan Lee's work without knowing it. But the first, you know, Marvel comic I bought, knowing it's a Marvel comic, was Fantastic Four number four, The Return of the Submariner, mm-hmm. and it blew my mind. I never heard anything like it. I I, I loved that comic. Um, and read it um, till Kirby left. You know, that was, you know, it's very hard with, um, you know, dare I say, boomers like myself. It is hard to sort of differentiate when you might be growing tired of a, of a comic or of a genre, you know, at the same time as you're also becoming a teenager and growing up. So, um, you know, I, I, I look at this comic now and I actually think it's pretty well constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. If, I think I probably stopped reading Fantastic Four and most of the other Marvels around this time. I followed Kirby to DC when he went to do the Fourth World, and that's just based on looking through my old collection, which is kind of crumbling, but it's still <laughs> there. Um, you know, I think I did keep buying stuff like the FF, but 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 there was a certain point where uh, um, it didn't feel, there was a period of like the first five years, five or six years of Fantastic Four, where every, I mean, you know, Spider-Man too, but but Fantastic Four, which was the flagship, every issue was something new and something cool and some new angle and some new riff and some new character. And some, it just, you know, it it continued with the, say, with the Steranko and Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, you know, um, what Ditko was doing uh, with Spider-Man uh, in those first few years, and then what Romita was doing with Stan. But at a certain point, I just, uh, it, it, it didn't speak to me. And this is, this is, I'm pretty sure that this is a comic I didn't read till I was actually reprinting it. Mm-hmm. Okay, no. okay. Um, so, you know, don't forget, 1971, I was... Uh, 17 going on 18, which, you know, I mean, I get that you know, there's a lot of teenage comic readers. I was shifting over more towards undergrounds and mm-hmm. uh, American Splendor and, and literature and movie. I was a movie guy. I became a film major in college. So that was where more of my attention uh, was going. Um, you know, having said that, I've, I've written some Fantastic Four stories. And one thing that I'm sure... You know, I wrote. I think I wrote like two or three issues of Fantastic Four, and uh, for five minutes I was supposed to be the regular writer, but then, uh, you know, the, the um, sands shifted, and I was no longer the regular writer. But I, somewhere in a drawer, somewhere, actually, I think it's at Al Milgram's house, um, <laughs> is a seventy-eight page Fantastic Four graphic novel that uh, I wrote. I, I plotted, I scripted it. Al Milgram 
has penciled it, some of it, and the ink, some of it. I think Janice Chang has lettered all of it. Wow. I think Marvel must have written it off, you know, decades ago. Sean Fleefeld, if you know that name. He's a, yeah. He's a, uh, Sean was sort of trying to start a movement to like find it and print it because it was a cool, it was a cool story. The, um, it was, it was a story that after I pitched the plot, the editor uh, sat in his chair and applauded me. You know? Wow. So that was pretty good. And, and, and uh, you know, there's about 15 or 20 ink lettered in pages. So the Fantastic Four, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I'm, you know, because of all the Spider-Man that I edited and wrote, I mostly identify with Spider-Man, but really Fantastic Four was the game changer for, for you know, it, I mean, uh, for me, and I think for a lot of people of my generation who got into comics. Oh yeah, I mean, and it introduces so many concepts. <laughs> like you're talking, you know, the the Inhumans and Black Panther and Galactus, and I mean, just you know, the Return of the Submariner, like you just mentioned. I mean, it's just you know, it's just so, amazing I mean, how much stuff just sprang out of that particular title. So what I'd say about this issue, ninety three, um, and then the fantastic, you know, what I had to do, uh, one of my uh, jobs and again it was to uh, trim the the uh, twenty page story down to eighteen pages because that was everything else's ads in in in, uh, in that era you know then a couple of years later we put more story pages in but at this point so usually you know you'd have to sort of surgically remove panels mm. you know, here and there or a tier of panels you you couldn't there usually wasn't enough uh, fan on it that you could just cut out whole pages unless maybe it was a splash a full page splash but even then they, those usually look pretty cool um, but I you know I would say that this story is not the greatest work of anybody involved in it you know I'd say it's professional it's workmanlike and uh, it it just um, you know you know it, it, it hits all the right notes you got the watcher in there you know, who uh, once again breaks his vow. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the whole purpose of the watch. It's like the per- the whole purpose of superhero prison is for people to break out of it. The whole purpose of a guy who just watches is to, for him to break his vow. You know, otherwise, right. what, what is it? Um, so, yeah, it, it seems like a very lackluster issue done by some incredibly talented people who were picking up a check. <laughs> that's, well, that's- I, I have said, I say this about every single uh, comic that we end up covering drawn by John Buscema that superheroes because what we know about him is that he didn't like superheroes. He wasn't, that was not his thing. He loved Conan and Tarzan and become more grounded stuff. But, but, you, but you can see John, I mean, actually I think of everybody involved and look, I mean, I think the, if I had a guard on a limb, I would guess that Stan had some help plotting that, you know, mm. uh, based on my research in Stan's archives and just talking to people. I would guess that uh, that you know Stan may have talked it over with Yusema mm-hmm. and or with whoever the uncredited co-plotter is, but you know you can and you, look. You can look at John's work over the years in the superhero genre, and if it's, it's superb, though. I mean, yeah, it's, but, that's, that's the amazing thing is that supposedly he didn't like superheroes, but good lord, he did a million pages, and it all looks amazing. And if he's and and and, and he's more and less. Inspired. The thing, what makes a professional professional is even right. when he's not, even when they're not inspired, they can still do uh, excellent work. You know, so I think even with superhero, excuse me, I think with superheroes, John could be inspired if he mm-hmm. thought the story was exciting or a character was exciting. I mean, you know, John was a professional curmudgeon. He loved, you know, 
he, he loved, you know, I don't, I didn't know him well, so I'm not claiming I'm the expert on, but it just seemed to me that he got a kick out of being a curmudgeon and saying that he didn't enjoy stuff. Oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> you know, but, but he's, but look, look, look at the guy's skill set. Yeah. Oh, I Lord. Thing, I think the only thing that bored him more than superhero comics was advertising. Because okay. look at that skill set. He could have made a million dollars a week in advertising if he wanted. Mm-hmm. It was like the perfect ad guy. And he had done that, but I think it bored him to tears. Wow. Know? Amazing. That's it's just amazing. So uh, let me wind back a little bit. Like, how did you end up getting the job at Marvel? Because you kind of <laughs> hit the ground running as a writer and editor at the same time. Uh, no, it took a while for the writing. Oh, I mean, did it? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess yes and no. I mean, I started in 77, and I guess I started writing in 78 or 79. It felt to me like a long time. Right. Um, <laughs> right, it, yeah, right. True to you. Looking like, back, yeah. you know. Um, I um, had always done creative type stuff, you know, mostly writing. You know, no, anybody who's in comics starts out wanting to draw comics. I drew, as a kid, I couldn't stop drawing. I, mean, I got to be okay, you know, the you know, my, you know, even though I grew up uh, in, uh, in Manhattan, you know, within walking distance of probably five or ten world-class art schools, the school I wanted to go to was the one that you drew the pictures in the back of the comic and mailed it in to the Sure, yep. yep. Can you draw this dog? And that yeah, kind of exactly, thing. yeah. We're looking for people who like to draw. Um, and uh, so I took that test, and shockingly, I passed it. I don't think anybody ever failed, you know. I don't think anybody ever didn't pass it, but I... You know, I, I was I was decent for a twelve year old, and uh, salesman came to the house, and uh, you know, and again, my parents said, "Well, look, uh, you know, think about it for a few days. If you still want it, we'll we'll enroll you in it." And uh, you know, I was a kid, and there was some shiny object that got my attention, so I didn't take it. But but I mean, I started out wanting, I, you know, I knew the name Stan Lee. I wasn't right, you know, and I knew he was the writer and editor, whatever that meant. But of course, the person you want that my generation wanted to be was Jack Kirby. Um, so I drew all the time. And then I went uh, on to the other things, creative writing and filmmaking. And, uh, and I graduated uh, college and I uh, came, I did what every kid does, which is I came back to my uh, boring hometown. Uh, my boring hometown was Manhattan, which believe me was as boring to me as anybody else's hometown is to them. Right. You know? um, <laughs> It didn't, uh, I took everything for granted. I mostly just, uh, you know, whatever your hometown is, you want to get the hell out of it. But I came back to my hometown and, uh, you know, I had, I had a, I had a, a degree from a terrific kind of fine arts film program. Um, it was, it was, um, it was, it was, it was, it was film as a sort of in the mode and the school of people you never heard of uh, filmmakers like Stan Brackage and, Ken Jacobs and uh, um, Michael Snow, people who were great fine artists, but obviously not household names. Nicholas Ray taught at my school. I didn't study with him, but Nick Ray, the director of Rebel Without a Cause, mm-hmm. he actually taught there. Anyway, wow. I came home, but I, you know, and uh, what am I going to do? You know, well, uh, I don't really want to go to graduate school. I don't want to go to Hollywood. Um, Maybe it might be interesting to work at Marvel Comics. So I had a, I had a contact there that could get me up on an informational tour. Not that he'd get me a job, but just get me on a tour. And while I was up there, I ran into somebody I went to high school with who was working there, and he helped me later on get a job as Larry Lieber's assistant. And that was the beginning of what I thought would be 
you know, maybe something interesting to do for a few months that turned into, you know, a lot longer than that. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> that's so cool. I've been, you know, I've always been writing. I was on the editorial board of my high school literary magazine. So editing was not unfamiliar to me. Right. And, 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 you know, and from film, film like comics is a combination of words and pictures, you know, put together to tell a story. So it was, you know, it was a, it was a pretty logical, you know, possible step after film school. Hmm. Was it when you got there? I mean, like I said, I, when I was a kid, I took a tour of the Marvel offices, I think twice. And, you know, I was, Ten, nine, when I took them, and and it, or you know, and it the, just the Madison Avenue offices or the park? Uh, uh, yeah, three it was three eighty seven yeah, Madison, uh, right? Uh, yeah, three, and it, no, no, five seventy five Madison, and then from there we moved to three eighty seven Park Avenue South. Then it would it would have been three eighty seven Park Avenue South. Okay, I remember yeah. the three eighty seven yeah. being part of it, and it just seems like a magical place because this is where the books come from. You know what I mean? I think this is where it is. And again, I realized you know. For a for an adult, it's a job like anything else, with its ups and its downs and its hassles and its you know whatever. But you know, to a to a ten year old, you know, reading these names, I was like, God, these people, God, they get to work in in you know in comics. It's just got to be the most amazing thing. Now, you edited a lot of the reprint titles. Your editor, your name as the editor, are all over Marvel Super Action, Tales of Astonishment, Mister Fantasy Masterpieces. Did you get like feedback from anybody? Oh. I mean, were they, or did you know you just you put the books together and you shipped them out and you started on the next one? And did you did you get any sense of who was actually buying these things? We get the occasional letter from you know I think this, the people whose names turned up the most in the regular letter columns, you know I think would would sometimes write in. You know I think some people probably were upset that we'd cut out pages. Although I guess if they knew we cut out pages. They must have had the originals, so I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, that's some, those are some <laughs> diehard fans, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't remember any anything, you know, obviously there wasn't a lot because we didn't have a letter column and we weren't asking for letters. You know, I don't remember anything particularly crazy or anything particularly brilliant, um, but um, yeah, there, would, there would be, but was there a sense of who? You know, the comic book business is famous for not doing, for doing virtually no market research or demographic <laughs> research mm -hmm. you know i mean uh we could sort of tell from um from the letters the range of people who were reading but you know i because that was a question you know i i think we just worked on the premise at least i did and it seemed to me that a lot of other people were too is this something that a child can understand but that an intelligent adult could also appreciate without you know without without condescending to it. now i always thought especially with the superheroes and especially in the 80s that our audience was still had to be at least half children you know i mean mm -hmm. even, even with the advent of the comic book shops um and sort of the legitimization of comics as reading material i i because that i mean you it's funny. All your questions are are very uh, have more layers to them than they <laughs> seem at first. Because <laughs> no, uh, no, it speaks uh, it speaks highly of you. You know that because they're um, what does an adult buying a comic book want? Does the adult does an adult buying a comic book want something that's 
a recreation in a modern way of the childhood adventure and excitement that uh, he or she got from a comic? Mm. Or do they want a comic that grows up and becomes mature and sophisticated along with them? And the answer, of course, is some, some adult readers want one thing and some want the other. And that's why the, the comics market is so uh, all, over the, all over the charts with, with superheroes. Um, so that was the question we were always asking, you know, who is, who is this stuff for? And I always just used to figure that I was, I was aiming to do something that would uh, excite 12-year-old me, you know, that if, mm-hmm. that if something, that 12-year-old me, as far as, as, as much as I could get back in touch with that person, would find this boring, then something had to, had to give, something had to change. Wow. Um, but as far as real demographics and somebody coming around with charts and graphs saying, here, who's reading? No, we had no right. idea. <laughs> right, right. Well, it, it's funny you mentioned at the top of the show the, the impetus for for so many of these titles, and that that is not what I ever guessed why, why they were created. That it was mostly to, to sort of you know fulfill quotas for for advertising. Uh, you know that again that, that I'm, that's something I've just learned. I've been reading about comics for forty years, and I just learned that. But I always assumed, and maybe I, again, this is. The, this is a completely wrong assumption, and if I'm wrong, you can you can disabuse me of this notion. What I noticed is, except for Marvel Tales, which ran Spider-Man, uh, and it ran a much longer than any of these other books. And I actually, I did not handle Marvel Tales. I did later on when I was editing Spider-Man books, but when I was doing the reprint books, I did not do Marvel Tales. Right. So Marvel Tales, other than Marvel Tales, virtually all these other reprint titles, Amazing Adventures, Tales to Astonish, Marvel Super Action, Fantasy Masterpieces, Marvel Superheroes, and then Marvel's Greatest Comics, all got canceled around the same time. They all generally folded around 81, 82. Within about a two-year span, they all went away. Now, I had always assumed um, that that was – and I think about, well, why, why would that be? And I thought, well, that's kind of the dawn of the comic shop really flourishing. And I'm wondering, was that – is it because previously all those old comics were not really available? anymore i mean unless you had the issue you happen to have it you couldn't get it anymore because the comics were you know they were gone like i never read i never read any of these old hulks but i read them via marvel superheroes i never read this fantastic four but i read it via this issue of marvel's greatest comic i always assumed that because now old comics were much more readily available by 82 83 the direct market was was growing at that point that the desire to have these books in reprint form died out because you could buy the originals. And that's why all these titles folded around the same time. Now, is that, do you have any idea if that's at all correct or am I just making that up? You know, I'm sure it's a factor and, and, and it's funny that I, um, but my, my kind of um, deduction about it from being in the company, because you said they all died around the same time. Marvel, Marvel's, Marvel's structure, Marvel's editorial structure had been huge in the 40s and 50s. There were many editors and, uh, and sub-editors, and then they had that implosion in the late 50s. And then it was pretty much Stan Lee and maybe an assistant and maybe a production person, but probably not even. So Marvel, and then it grew slowly, right? I mean, probably if Martin Goodman hadn't been Stan's uh, cousin, he probably would have just... Uh, Deep Six, the comics division altogether. Right. 
but it was easier to keep Stan employed than to act like see him at Thanksgiving and you know feel bad. So, um, and I'm only being proudly uh, humorous here. So, <laughs> but the, so obviously starting, you know, they regrouped. Uh, Kirby and Ditko came over. They did the, the fantasy and cowboy books, and uh, then the superhero started. And the company grows and grows and grows, and they hired more personnel. But essentially, the structure was still everything goes to the editor-in-chief, which is one of the reasons they burned through so many editors-in-chief after Stan and so quickly. So Jim Shooter came in with a with more of a vision of how to structure a company more like DC had been structured, right. with editorial departments. So that enabled, I think, I mean, you know, and, 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 and as you say this, I'm sure the, 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 the direct market probably was part of that equation because Jim then had, you know, Marvel was was famous for just throwing reprints in arbitrarily when they missed when they were about to miss a deadline on a new book. You know, that was the, you know, if you were a reader in those days in the seventies and, you know, in the early very early eighties, you'd know suddenly you'd be expecting something, some major storyline that had been promised the issue before, and you'd get a reprint. So Jim was able to make things run uh, in a more efficient manner which also enabled the line to grow. And as did the, now that you see it, as there were more and more comic shops, uh, there was more and more of a market for these new comics. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, you know, we tried like experimenting with direct only books, the Dazzler and Moon Knight. And I think it was Micronauts, the other one. No, Dazzler, Moon Knight and Kazar. Yeah, yeah, that that Kazar went direct only. I think Moon Knight, Micronauts, did Micronauts eventually go all direct? It did too, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so I think, but really, I do think that those that those were put out as a as a play, as as just a way to honor commitments. So so it combined having more comic shops meant that we could sell that there'd be more market for newer comics, and having a more efficient system in place to produce the comics meant that gotcha. we could produce more comics, and therefore we didn't need we didn't, no longer needed the placeholder of the reprint books. I mean, I have no. You know, um, look, in some ways, those reprint books were kind of found money, too. I mean, they were sure. the production costs were virtually zero. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I, this may sound ridiculous from someone who's a lifelong publishing professional, but I have no idea what they sold. You know, they, prob- they probably <laughs> sold 150000 to 200000 though, you know. Which, Can you imagine, imagine that? That's was, what Batman sells now. Right, you know. But I mean, don't forget they were also thirty-five cents a copy. Right, right, right. Like right. great investment. You know? We're in four ninety-nine now, like they are. So yeah. Oh my god. Right. I, like I said, it, it, you know, pre-comic shops, we we got a comic shop. In, the, the first comic shop in our neighborhood uh, debuted in like nineteen eighty-two. So pre these, my access to those stores, this was how I read old comics. It was books like this, and I read a lot of them. And again, I've already. I've covered an issue of Marvel Super Action on Mount Comics already, and I've covered a Marvel Superheroes. There's some Marvel Tales that I bought on them. So these were these uh, look, titles look. were big Mountain Comics. They were big books that I bought them when I went on vacation. Let me ask you a question: Did you know they were reprints? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because a lot of you know, not everybody, no, especially kids. Uh, uh, not every kid realizes they're reprints. They just know they like you know whatever character, and here's another comic with that character. I was no, I was I was hip enough about how comics worked, and plus I could see in the little you would always have that little credit on the splash right, page right, on the right, side right. originally appeared in. You know, I was like, oh, okay, but no, I knew that they were, re- but I was okay. I was like, hey, I didn't, I, I, it's new to me, 
you know, so what do I know? You know what I mean? So it was always a, they were, they were big books. And so, you know, there is something to, it's a very specific moment in comics history that these Marvel, especially DC did them too, but Marvel really went in all in on all these reprint titles and said, this comic, this one is Marvel's greatest comics ever. 93 is, is a beloved book to me. It's, it's, as I've mentioned on other episodes, you know, I used to have like 15,000 comics and over the years they've gone, they've all been sold and given away, but all the Mount comics I still have, I still have oh, yeah. them all, you know, well, you know, you know, as long, you know, along with that, along with the cliche about the golden age of anything is 12, the other, the other, you know, another thing that we actually were guided by at Marvel was every comic is somebody's. Every every comic is not only somebody's first issue of that title, but maybe the first comic they've ever read. Period. Mm-hmm. And then, sort of a corollary of that, which uh, uh, which I think uh, there's no way, you know, to really. That's it's more of an observation is that every comic is somebody's favorite comic, no matter whatever you know. I mean, that was, you know, that was uh, you know, not that I wanted to spend any more time talking about the Clone Saga than I ever had, but that was what, uh, <laughs> you know, that was the annoying thing. You know, the Clone Saga actually increased sales of Spider-Man when everything else was tanking, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there was such a negative feeling about it uh, coming even out of the company, you know, for reasons that I understand. But it's like, you know, there's a lot of kids, a lot of people who were 10 years old when the Clone Saga came out, for whom it's their favorite comics and made them comics lovers. I mean, it's a, you know, so you, you, you know, and of course Marvel's been reprinting, you know, in every possible iteration. So it's uh, so so it's it makes perfect sense that Marvel's greatest comics ninety three might be one of your favorite childhood comics. Yep. Even though I just got through dumping on it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said it meant a lot to me, and it is, I, you know, again, I, when I was nine and ten and reading these names, I never would have imagined that I would ever get a chance to talk to anybody that made these things because it just seemed like, again, you guys are all like these magical, like celestials. You're these magical beings that just somehow these things come out of this building and okay, but it ends up in my neighborhood. And so uh, I am so, I'm so, so uh, thrilled that I got the chance to talk to you about this. I could go on. I could ask you all night about working at Marvel, but I will not. We will, we will, we will stop here. I'd be, I'd be glad to do a part two at some point. Absolutely. So um, as we're, as we're wrapping up here, I know that uh, everybody's listening to this. If you're listening to this on the day it comes out, the San Diego comic-con is just a few days away. So why don't you tell people both where they can find you out on the internet and mention about what you'll be doing at SDCC. Okay. Well, I'm old. So my most active social network is of course uh, Facebook. Um, Um, uh, but you can also find me at uh, Danny at dannycongroth.com. Um, my, my website needs a rehauling, uh, an overhauling, but the, um, but the basic information is there and, and, and the contact, you know, the contact sheet with the uh, email info. Um, I uh, am still uh, very much promoting and uh, behind um, my Stanley biography, A Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stan Lee, that came out in 2019. Paperback came out 2020, and I did the audio book for it. So if you enjoyed listening to this, imagine 14 hours of, of this. <laughs> um, and then I also just read, although two older books of mine, Superman on the Couch and Disguised as Clark Kent, came out in the uh, early, mid-2000s. However, I just literally this spring read the, did the readings for the audio books, and they are now available uh, at your usual audio book places. And, um, and, and, uh, and I'm 
also in the middle of writing a biography of Jack Ruby, not Jack Kirby, Jack Ruby, the guy who killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Right. Yeah. Okay. That was not the name I was expecting you to yeah. say, but okay. With the 60th anniversary of the uh, Kennedy assassination coming up. And I'll just, you're right. Yeah, next week at San Diego Con, uh, COVID willing, I will be going there. Um, and uh, I'll be doing many, many panels. Uh, Stanley at 100, a panel about banned comics, uh, uh, a perennial favorite, who's the most neurotic superhero. I'm on about eight or ten panels. So just <laughs> if, if you're going to the con, um, check out the program. If you're not going to the con, you know, the past two years, the San Diego con was uh, online, and uh, many of these same panels with, like, uh, fancy hotshot comic book people like... Uh, Brian Bendis and Dennis Kitchen and Todd McFarlane and uh, on and on. Um, and the other thing that I'm involved with is, uh, I'm probably forgetting half a dozen, is I am uh, a consultant to the Will Eisner Studios for what they call Will Eisner Week, which is an annual celebration of Will Eisner, the graphic novel and free speech. Will Eisner was, of course, the creator of the spirit and mm-hmm. one of the inventors of the modern graphic novel. So uh, if you go to uh, Will Eisner on YouTube, or Will Eisner Week on YouTube, Lots of videos of me talking to really interesting people, accomplished people, Jerry Craft, um, you name them, from all different parts of the comic book world, not just the superhero world, the indie world, the uh, scholastic world. So that's, that's the plug section of our, of our thing. But if you are at the San Diego Con, uh, come say hello. I will not shake your hand because of COVID but right. wear, and wear a mask, but I will... I will say witty things and uh, move my eyebrows in an entertaining fashion. Oh boy, can have that to look forward to, everybody. So, well, uh, of course, uh, well, the plug section is not done. I have to plug myself. Uh, you can, of course, subscribe to this show on any podcatcher of your choice. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at FWP Mountain Com. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash FW Podcast. So, uh, Danny, once again, thank you so much for coming to the virtual cabin here. This was. So exciting that I got to talk to you about uh, a, a very obscure corner of your vast career. And I really appreciate your generosity in coming on to talk to me about something that obviously, was, again, was like, you know, just like your daily, it was, you know, not something you were committing to memory as opposed to your writing. But I, I, I was so great to be able to talk to you about this. These questions I've had in my mind, like my whole life. Well, I, I hope that I have, uh, that you that that you uh, we finish and you have now a new a new uh, incredible uh, quantity of useless knowledge. And, <laughs> yes, uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad to supply it to you. So. Absolutely, it's an un- un- yeah. There's always space in my brain for more useless comic book trivia. So well, uh, <laughs> I'm glad to get it from. All right. Yeah. So thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we will be back next month with another episode of Mountain Comics, and uh, we will see you then. Bye. Have a summer of fun. In the Poconos, at your host with the most in the Poconos. Every kind of summer fun at Mount Airy Lodge or Pocono Gardens. Beautiful rooms, fabulous food, headline entertainment. Winter, spring, summer, fall. Call 966-7210 for reservations at Pocono Gardens and... Beautiful Mount Airy Lodge.